Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of The Cranog. This week we're going to be exploring um, how Scotland tells good stories and Walt Disney. <laughs> we're going to be looking at folklore that is similar to stories in fairy tales and kind of tangentially to that, uh, Disney. So, hope you enjoy. It seems to be a recurring theme that Disney will somewhat sanitise the tales they come across. And Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, the titular character, devotes her life to her beloved prince, despite the fact that every step on her human feet feels like she's walking on blades. And in the end, they don't ride off into the sunset. Rather, the prince marries a neighbouring princess and breaks the Little Mermaid's heart, so she chooses to kill herself rather than her ex, which is an interesting decision, and dissolves into sea foam. That's not quite how Disney's version went. Ariel was just as in love with human knickknacks as her predecessor, but one-ups her by managing to win a happily ever after. Critics believe that Anderson's tale is a more effective message on love and self-sacrifice than the Disney movie, but others believe that both capture the curious heroine, an unusual character defined by their longing for knowledge, especially unusual in a woman. Which is the better story? The one with a saccharine, sweet, satisfying finish, or the one that may be a touch more believable? The answer is C, the Scottish version. Of course we have one too! Scotland has two kinds of mermaid. The selkie, the creature who can transform into a human by taking off their seal, uh, seal skin coat, or the classic mermaid, complete with fish fins and seashell bikinis. Well, modern illustrations may feature the bikini, but cl most classic descriptions of mermaids feature a strong desire to free the nipple. Unlike the Disney versions, Scottish mermaids were pretty much 50-50 on whether they would save you from drowning or actively help in the process. However, there were plenty of stories of young mermaids falling in love with human men, and mermen with human women for that matter. Legend has it that a mermaid who marries a human man will keep her good looks forever. A nice way to avoid a regime of Botox, I suppose. One young mermaid lived at the northernmost point of Scotland, in a cave tucked into the cliffs under the lighthouse. The seas there were stormy and unpredictable, and she spent her days swimming through shipwrecks and finding sparkly treasures to decorate her little home. Soon enough, her cave became known as the Uvanor, or the Cave of Gold. One day, as she was out touring the latest wooden skeleton, she spotted a young man on the shore, catching bait for his line. He was really very bonny, and a good enough option for a mermaid who had just found her first wrinkle. So she approached him. The more she saw, the more she liked. She liked the way he laughed, how the village girl seemed to hang on his every word, his strong hands at the rudder, and his sure eye on the sails. Soon enough, she was deeply in love with the man. But how to approach him? Ah, of course, gifts. She picked through her golden cave and brought him fine jewels, golden crowns, and silken robes. With every visit, he smiled at her and called her beautiful. But his eyes were fixed on the treasure she lay at his feet. Soon, he was asking for more and more. He would consider marriage, if only he had a golden comb for his long hair. He would put some thought into it from the comfort of a throne, perhaps. Maybe he would make his mind up if he only had bracelets enough to line his arms from wrist to elbow. Now the mermaid may have been in love, but she was no fool. She decided to give him a test. 
One day, she took him down to her hidden cave, guiding him beneath the waves and giving him the power to breathe underwater as easily as a fish. When they arrived, he tore out of her grip and rushed around the bounty, running greedy hands over gold and silver and silk. The mermaid was disgusted. Now she knew he had loved the treasure far more than he had ever loved her. And like many fairy folk before her, she decided that this greedy man needed to be punished. When the young man turned to leave the cave, arms weighed down with riches, he found the mermaid nowhere to be seen. Even worse, he found he could not leave. He had been cursed to live there forevermore, another item for the mermaid's collection, and he's still there to this day. Ooh. Arguably, a happily ever after. The villain in this case was punished, as he should be. On the other hand, the audience for this tale uh, was written for probably viewed the mermaid more of as a temptress. So the story is less about the perils of greed and more about the perils of temptation. After all, it was her treasure and her decision to use it to seduce this man. I do appreciate that this mermaid has the grit of a classic Scottish fairy. They will do what they want to do and you best stay out of their way. Yes, they will occasionally fall in love with a human, but if that doesn't go the way they want, it's easy to fix with a quick curse or maybe murder. See if Eric did marry Ursula in the end. Do you think Ariel would have tumbled into a quivering pile of sea foam? Or would she have sunk the ship? Um, that felt like, to me, a metaphor for consent. I can see it. <laughs> no, I did find it really interesting researching around the different mermaid myths, trying to find something that was very like Ariel. You, do, you tended to get two themes where it was the poor mermaid being taken advantage of by a fisherman. And so the fisherman using his wits, although his wits tend to be like grabbing her by her hair or, you know, just <laughs> beating her until <laughs> she submits, which isn't great. Um, and then, you know, asking for a favor, you know, and then so they would then say, OK, well, I'll release you now if you make sure my ship never sinks or I'll release you if you give me your golden comb that you use to brush your hair. Um, and the other, on the other side, you get ones where you have this like seductress where they want to capture this mermaid so they can possess her. And then in the end, they lose because the mermaid takes away their children. You know, like she belongs to the sea. So she's like, fine, I'll marry you. I'll have your kids. But in 20 years time, I'm taking your kids and I'm leaving. But it's just quite interesting seeing how like it's such a it's always such a metaphor. If you have any kind of temptress figure. It's always such a metaphor for the evils of women. I quite like thinking there. There are a surprising number of, of ones with either sea witches or mermaids or silkies, whatever, that do take the children away. I wonder if that's like even like subconsciously got anything to do with like the Madonna whore. So like the Madonna is the one that you would associate with the children um, and like the kind of mother figure that pure concept of what being a woman should be and then like the whore is just the seductress who goes against that archetype i did find a lot of information that kind of confirmed that um so a lot of these stories are from orkney which uh a lot of their tales oh i mean has altered the wrong word to say when christianity became quite large you can see how tales went from like a nordic influence say to more of a christian influence and they have a tale about the reason the mermaid has a tail is because it used to just be a woman, like a water nymph. 
and Eve saw her and was jealous of the fact that she was beautiful, whereas human women have to age. So she made God give her a fishtail, um, which so shows, you know, punished for their beauty. And then they go on to punish men for their jealousy. And then the other option was that when the children were taken away, the only children that survived were the ones who had been marked with the sign of the cross. So showing that like the mermaid in this case was associated with the devil if you were not properly worshipping God, then you and your children could be taken away by the devil. I also love that although Scotland's stories are normally the saddest and darkest, Han Christian Anderson really likes to up, <laughs> up the level. <laughs> what if everyone died? <laughs> That's folklore for you. So I think of the other mermaid stories I can think of, and yeah, they're all pretty bleak, and they're all usually the mermaid is not very nice character in them not like not always like actively malicious if not just i feel like the kind of like fairies they just consider themselves above humans so what happens to humans isn't really that important right up in unst about two giants called uh herman and saxa from herman s to saxa board and they like both fancy the mermaids because apparently mermaids are attracted to every kind of being and like, she just gets tired of him fighting over her, so she says, right, whoever can swim to the North Pole meets me there first, like, gets me. Well, neither giant can swim, but they're so intoxicated, they go after her, and then they both drown. That's the story. The mermaid comes back and just laughs. I think there's some nice ones with selkies. Sometimes yeah. they can be quite nice. They can be nice, but I still think they're, they're still temptresses. You know, it's always the men are pursuing them because they want something. And you have the Selkies that leave their children behind, but they're still abandoning their family, you know? There was one, I think you spoke about it before, Roshin, and it's a guy who'd married the Selkie, and then he'd hid her coat away, and she eventually found it and went back to the sea and stuff, but she still, like, guided the ships of the children and looked after them while they were fishing at sea and stuff. It's true, but, like, from researching around that particular tale, and I remember it because it was in the little book that I did, it that was one version of a tale that ends with the Selkie saying, I loved you well enough, but I had like a seal husband and I loved him best. And then that's it. And the kids never see her again. So it did give me the, like, it seemed more like a tacked on tale, you know, of someone maybe trying to sanitize it themselves. Yeah, I do definitely feel like, you know, mermaids it almost kind of falls apart of like mermaids are seductive to seductresses and then selkies there's almost like more tales about them kind of being taken advantage of while mermaids take take advantage of men selkies are taken advantage of almost yeah maybe it's as well the kind of link strong link between mermaids and sirens and sirens are always seen as that kind of luring minute so yeah but I do think, like, there's a lot of pity I felt for the mermaid in this one because there's no kind of... Like, there is this legend about this is why they want a husband so they can stay young forever. But that was not, like, in the different versions of this particular tale that I found, it wasn't always added on. So you just feel like, okay, so here's this young mermaid who falls hopelessly in love with a man who just uses her. And there's, like, a lot of pity for her, but you can't, you're supposed to come out of it hating her for her decision to trap him you know you think the man was a fool for trusting the evil fairy or that's the message that i think a contemporary audience would have got 
Because I've told that story before, or a similar story anyway, and the, the reaction I got from most people was, good honour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody was on the mermaid side. They were like, Ooh. I was getting a feeling that story, it's like, you know, she's a mermaid, she's, she's beautiful, and that's what mermaids are supposed to be supposed to be she could probably have any man she might but she finally opened herself up to somebody and got burnt which is mm. how true is that to life yeah you know? i was just thinking how much quicker would the little mermaid film be if she was just like nah i'm not doing any of this transformation <laughs> nonsense stick him in a cave <laughs> <laughs> goodbye forever <laughs> that's it that actually reminded me of um the bit in the story that i was most surprised by because the first time i've heard that happening was that she was able to pass on her magic to him and allow him to swim through the sea like a fish. And I've never heard that in any other tale, because the original, the the version of Little Mermaid that I grew up with was the very, very first one that Rasheen told, where it has the bad ending. And then when I came to the UK, it was like, oh, the happy ending. I was like, what? <laughs> um, and now the Scottish ending. She gives him magical powers. Love it. Yep. How, like was that for you coming you know from one version into like the sad version into the happy version like how much of a culture shock was that i don't know a wee bit because i was also older so i thought oh why are, like surely it would be like the younger kids get the nicer version yeah um, whereas like when you grow up a bit you're like nah toughen up here's the here's the dark version if anyone is interested in reading more about the mermaid stories especially the ones from orkney i would recommend tom muir's book He's got The Mermaid Bride and other folk tales from Orkney or and other Orkney folk tales. Um, I listened to some, you can listen to some of his stories as well online and they're absolutely beautiful, really well delivered. But he's got a really good breadth of like, this is the position of the mermaid and different stories. Um, and this is how they're kind of used and abused. I am going to be talking about the Kelpie of Loch Garve, which is a bit of a looser um, link to Beauty and the Beast, but I figured it's about a woman who falls in love with a Kelpie. So I thought it would do. Um, so the story basically goes that there is this woman walking along and in the classic kind of Kelpie way, she sees this horse stood on the shore so she goes and she gets on its back and it plunges her into the water and the the usual Kelpie story would go that be, would be that that was how she dies but she doesn't um because the Kelpie turns into this monstrous beast under the water and she looks at it and she's like I want some of that um and like goes all like googly eyes at it and the Kelpie's kind of like what um and then it falls in love too so the woman and the Kelpie fall in love and they live under Loch Garve for a while but soon the woman, his wife, starts to just get really cold. Um, he gives her the ability to breathe underwater by the way so it's fine. Um, but she gets really cold and miserable um, because she's living underwater. So he goes back up on land, he finds a mason and drags the mason into the water in the classic Kelpie fashion and the mason's begging for his life and the Kelpie's like, okay, I'll let you live, but you have to build a chimney for my wife uh, and a fireplace. And the mason's like, we're underwater, dude. That's not going to happen. Um, and the Kelpie's like, I'll deal with it. It's fine. Like, I'll do the magic. You just build 
the chimney. And he's like, weird, but okay. So the, the mason builds a chimney. The Kelpie uh, stands by his word and he frees the mason. Um, he uses his magic to make a fire go underwater and... Um, there's a patch of ice. Uh, there's a patch on Loch Garve that never freezes over, and that's supposed to be where the heat from the chimney is coming up. And his wife is happy, and and so is the kelpie, and they live happily ever after. And also, the kelpie brought the mason fish every day for the rest of his life. Um, so he was quite pleased with that. So I did a bit of looking into different like beauty, uh, Beauty and the Beast type stories. So the original um Beauty and the Beast story was written by a French novelist called Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. <laughs> but when you look into the kind of folklore that it comes from, there's a lot of stories about women falling in love <coughs> with beasts. Um, and they usually take the form of a wolf, a snake, or a bear. Um, which I thought was quite interesting, because I feel like those are probably your three most dangerous animals, at least like in the wild in Europe. Um... And the stories usually take the form of she, you know, the main character goes to the domain of this beast, um, falls in love with them, and it's a story about, you know, looking within and seeing past the external facade of someone. And it's said there was a essay on the subject written, and an academic did, like, research into all of the folk uh, tales surrounding it, and... Um, identified a broader theme of that these stories were maybe told to help young women um, like kind of understand and prepare them for arranged marriages so it might you know it's not someone that they would typically choose um, but it's a story of like learning to love someone and love growing somewhere where it didn't exist before where you wouldn't ex- uh, expect it to exist Um which I just I just thought was interesting, and I liked that kind of commentary um, tying in with the Kelby of Lockar because it doesn't really quite fit the Beauty and the Beast narrative from Disney, but I do like the idea that in Scotland you don't typically mess with the Kelpies, but in this one she fell in love with him and they were happy, and that is the end. That's my favourite Kelpie story, but which I find quite strange because it's not a typical Kelpie story. Mm-hmm. Most of them is, yeah, you know, the Kelpie is this evil monster that drags you into the deep and all it washes up is a liver or something. No, it is, it's weird when I start talking to Kelpies, they tell a story like, oh, Kelpie's really nice and, like, you know, he's done this very nice thing for his wife, even though he kidnapped a mason to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be quite a few where I suppose it's usually more Kelpie, like, preying on women in man form. Strange, dark, handsome man and they sit by the river and he falls asleep with his head on her lap and she's like, oh, there's lots of seaweed and weird things and you're here, you're definitely a kelpie. But one of the weirdest ones I've found, it's only like, it's, it's, you can barely even call it a story because it's so short. It's basically a, from Sky, on the west coast of Sky, and an old woman is sitting in her house where her daughter's died and, you know, she's sitting watching over the body the day before the funeral. And this random man, dark, tall, handsome stranger, just comes in, just sits down next to her, doesn't say a word, just watches, and she's like, every so often he says a little, says something under his breath and the fire like burns up a little bit higher every time it starts to die down. And then he just left when dawn came. And everybody was convinced it was a Kelpie. 
Nobody knows why it was there, but I always think it's a bit of that Lock Kelpie and Lock Garve in it that they've definitely fallen in love and whether he was the cause of her death or he just, you know, loved her and she died. They definitely, I feel there's the same story there. Yeah, that's the tragic end. Well, I do remember coming across a Selkie story where a young woman falls in love with a seal and then the seal reveals himself to be a Selkie. So she's like, oh, phew, we could do something about this. Which is frightening <laughs> to say the least. But it that one that one ends tragically. So she ends up having a child with the Selkie and he comes back to take her son because you know, he won't be accepted on land and he belongs in the sea as he's a Selkie child. And then her husband, her human husband, um, is what is like a great seal fisher and guess who he brings back in his catch one day. So the Selkie of so scary. Yeah, oh my god, it makes me sob every time. It's so tragic. But I mean, you know, like, you can see how... So the Beauty and the Beast has a very happy ending, but I feel like because it's more of a moral tale, whereas if we had it as a classic folklore kind of tale where it serves more as a warning or a way to pass on information, the information to be passed on would be like, if you see a bear in the woods, run. (laughs) Like... It's not going to be, maybe ask him what he likes to do. Like, What's your idea of a perfect first date? Um, this is maybe more of an observation on like Beauty and the Beast rather than the Kelpie of Lockgarve. But um, what I kind of was thinking, it was along that lines of it being a metaphor for arranged marriage, is how in a lot of the... There's been a few different versions of Beauty and the Beast from like the original one. Um, rather than like the folk tales about people like marrying beasts, but it is a common thread, like through the Be- Beauty and the Beast retellings, and then in some of these like woman marries animal, um, stories as well, is that the animal will die, it will be killed, and then it will become like a handsome man or a prince, or so it's like. It's almost like she's she's being rewarded for you know persevering with this like non-idealistic idea of love and then she's rewarded for it and I was like that does really fit with the arranged marriage idea and like it is the kind of toxic narrative that you get nowadays of like oh you know you have to work really hard on your marriage or on your relationship or whatever you know you have to persevere through rubbish stuff and it's like it's so it can be rewarded with the true love at the end um that was just kind of what it reminded me of what i can fix it yeah exactly yeah. no girl with, <laughs> run with um i remember you saying like the different kind of animals that were typical you'd mentioned like snakes mm-hmm. do you remember did you look at any specific tales of that because that's kind of very much like even the, yeah. the snake idea So I wasn't going to do one because there's already four people doing a story, but then I got looking into Rob Roy and I thought he seemed interesting. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Rob Roy as Robin Hood-ish or a comparison. When I started research, I was like, this man is nothing like Robin Hood. He stole from the rich and gave to himself. (laughs) But there's other comparable parts of the tale that's not so much about helping the poor. So in Robin Hood, the Disney version, there's a fox in it. Not quite sure why, but you know, it looks nice. Um, 
And in that, like most tellings of Robin Hood, he is an archer, a, a fearsome warrior. He was a noble who was then shunned by a, a rich lord, cast off his lands, and then left to be a rebel in the woods and rob people and give it to the poor. Uh, with Rob Roy, he started off fairly okay well. Then he built up his money um, offering protection. Lovely, nice job to be doing, offering protection to the little lowland farmers so that no one would nick their cows, especially him, and he would just charge them a small rate for him not stealing their cows. Now, that might sound slightly like, you know, blackmail racketeering gangster stuff of New York. But he was a lovely, brave man, and he was protecting the poor lowland farms. And then after a while, he started getting his own herd, and he got a big investment from the Duke of Montrose, so they were best pals. But then his chief herdsman ran away with the money. We're going for that version because it makes Rob Roy look better. <laughs> so his chief herdsman ran away with the money, which put him in debt, and he was poor and destitute. So the evil Duke of Montrose, who is the sheriff of this tale, came and burned down his house and seized his lands and cast them out onto the streets. Um, and from that, uh, Rob Roy decided then that the Duke of Montrose was his arch rival. And he sided a wee bit with the Duke of, I think it was Argyle, uh, against the Duke of Montrose and decided to spend the rest of the next good wee while, I think it was about a decade, two decades, winding up the Duke of Montrose by nicking his cows and stealing his money and all that kind of stuff. And it's in, in the midst of that kind of rebellion banditry phase where I did find one kind of anecdotal story about him giving to the poor. So, bear with me on this one. <laughs> Follow me. Uh, there was an old woman. who It's always an old woman. There was an old woman um, and she, she wasn't able to pay her rent to the Duke of Montrose and she was going to be kicked out in the streets and, you know, Rob Roy, seeing he'd been kicked out by the Duke of Montrose as well, he wasn't having that happen to anyone else so he offered to pay the rent for this woman first so he gave the woman the money and said you know make sure you get a note from the duke's men when they when they collect the money um, and and we'll just make sure that that we've got a record of that so she did and they gave him the note and then rob roy had his men intercept the collectors as they were going around and steal all of their money from the duke of Montrose. so it came up a profit of that nice gesture as well <laughs> So it's possibly helping the poor or just keeping track of where the people with the money are going to be, I'm not sure. <laughs> he was also uh, majorly involved in the Jacobite stuff. A couple, One of the Battle of Killicranky did the famous Leap stuff and a uh, lot of the fight in there, that was his big one. He did another battle, which I can't remember the name of, where he was kind of in the back seat a bit. And some people say he didn't charge when he should have charged and he could have won it for them. But... Um, <laughs> Nowadays, a lot of historians say, looking at the, the what records they do have of the, the tactics and the layout of the battle, he wouldn't have made any difference. He would have just got all his men killed as well. Um, and in Walter Scott's version, they, they said that Rob Roy then went down as the bandit he was and robbed all the packs of both sides and making a fortune out of it. But it's not actually thought that there would have been any kind of money or uh, wealth or anything there. It would have just been weapons that they would have been taken. Mm. And as an under-equipped army that were fighting a losing battle it made sense for them to get what weapons they could and was a, a strategic mood that would have benefited the Jacobites in general. So, mm -hmm. um, But there is a lot of kind of back and forth. So on the nicest version, he's like Robin Hood in that he, he started out having an honest living. He was then made destitute by an evil duke. 
and then he spent the rest of his time as a bandit robbing from the rich to occasionally give to the poor and fighting for freedom. What a better person you can get. <laughs> On the more darker side, he was a bit of a gangster to start with. He maybe nicked the money of the Duke anyway, and then the Dukes took his lands in revenge of that. And then Rob Roy spent the rest of the time nicking even more money before he was eventually somehow pardoned without being sent off to Barbados. And just died in Perth at a nice old well, a nice old age for the time at sixty-three. Um, and he could have been to Barbados. Well, I don't think you really wanted to go there at the time. It was pretty much going into hard labour if you were sent there. <laughs> on a retreat. Yeah. No, not so much. What I also found interesting was he was described at kind of average height for the time, which was like five foot four. So we view him as this big strapping warrior man, like played by like Liam Neeson or whatever in the film. And he is he was a five foot four ginger. You know, just amazing. So there we go. Was Robin Hood a real guy, Robin Loxley. That was he was a real guy, no? There's people that they think he could have been, but he's mostly like a fabrication. And there was like the, the sheriff who was around the time who was like one of the most hated men in England, mm-hmm. so So do you think it's probably been maybe one guy stole from the sheriff and it's like snowballed into this tale of good versus evil and looking up for the little guy versus corruption. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I think like even like obviously like Rob Roy was real, I but I think we like we like to project that like Robin Hood yeah. image onto outlaws because yeah. I think William Wallace very much gets the same treatment. Interestingly, Greg Jenner, who's a historian that I absolutely adore, came out with a book on the history of celebrity. What's it called? Oh, it's too far away. Um, but <laughs> he talks about how criminals can sometimes be the most interesting celebrity and it really depends on the caliber of crime so for example we have a different interest with um dick turpin than we do with ted bundy right there's a different like kind of form of interest there but you know dick turpin the highwayman is a very same flavor to rob roy and one of the most famous people in victorian times was this young guy who kept escaping from like impossible prisons he escaped from the tower of london about three times and he kept going back to the same pub so they kept catching him again but it's this idea you know like as long as the criminal i feel has a bit of charisma a bit of joie de vivre people absolutely adore them and it's all these stories we have of rob roy being a bit of a rascal that makes him so much more likable despite the fact that he was more or less a mafia boss according to david He's still pretty legendary at the time, which I think is possibly why he got away with so much of it. It's, it's the, the Rob Roy, like whole Rob Roy McGregor has been, you know, is this like mythical name? But he did, he became a legend within his own time. And it was only because somebody released a book called, well, it's got like a name, it's about a paragraph long, but it's said to be short to like Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue or something, like way before Walter Scott's. And um, it's, Whoever came out with that is the reason he got away because yeah, he was down in London, I think, and ready to be deported <laughs> when the king stepped in and said, no, no, let him go, because he'd read the book. And nobody knows who wrote the book. Although people have said it was... Um, Rob Roy. <laughs> that's, that's who I think it was. So nobody knows who did it. And I think if he didn't, if Rob Roy didn't write it, he got somebody to write it for him. But there's so many interesting things. Like some people say that he's the person who invented the term blackmail. 
Wales is Scots word for red. Some people say it was in the border, some people say it was in the highlands, but like blackmail just means like ill-gotten red. A, a very Robin Hoody type thing that he did was you know like in Robin Hood and the Disney Robin Hood, like Robin Hood doesn't kill people. Mm -hmm. He like fires arrows and like pins them to trees and things. He doesn't actually kill people. And Rob Roy kidnaps Montrose's factor, Kaleo, um, the person who takes all the rent from people and everybody's very angry with. And he kept him on an island in Loch Katrin, which is still called Factor's Island. Um, and I'm sure it's in Loch Katrin. Uh, and basically, like, you know, um, ransomed him and said, you know, if you want him back alive, you've got to pay me whatever, you clear my name, blah, blah, blah. But Trolls was just like, nah. And Rob Roy was stuck because he's like, I don't actually want to kill him. So you just have to let him go. I wonder if he, he did write it though, because he was reported as being like a smart and very literate man. Mm. So he could have they, they said that he could read and write quite well. So he possibly could have written it. Yeah. I, I think he's so fun. Like I just, every time, every time we're researching for this podcast and I find something very tangentially related to him, I find myself down a wormhole of Rob Roy McGregor content. This week's theme has been a particularly fun one to listen to, as I must admit, I wasn't all that familiar with a lot of the folklore counterparts of tonight's stories. And in some cases, indeed, the Disney versions, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier on, um, I didn't grow up in the UK. So some of these stories have been quite new to me. And I did get a really great tip from Rasheen for this week's episode. And that was to look into some of the similarities between Frozen, the Disney film, and Scottish folklore tales of the Kaliach. While I can't say for certain that Frozen is inspired by this tale, there are certainly a lot of links between the two. Some quite curious um, and very interesting to see the distinction where the differences are in the original. Um, if it's been a few years since you've watched Frozen or if you've never seen it before, a quick recap is that it's a movie about two girls, um, Elsa and her younger sister Anna. And they live in a kingdom called Arendelle, which is a mythical land, but it has a name that sounds very, very similar to Arundel, which is located in England, not Scotland. However, I'm still willing to say this is the first nod to the UK origins and potential folklore origins of Frozen. But anyway, in Arundel, Elsa has the power to control ice and snow, and she struggles to handle this magic and exposes it to other citizens in her land, who then brand her as a witch and basically shame her. Um, in fear, she then flees to the mountains, unknowingly leaving the kingdom in a state of eternal winter. Her sister Anna then sets out to find Elsa and bring her back so she can undo the magic. And along the way, she's joined by other characters, um, one of them being a reindeer called Sven, um, which we'll come back to later on, um, but also Kristoff and a snowman named Olaf. <laughs> so how does this compare to the Kaliach? Well, in the most obvious similarity is that the Kaliach too was associated with winter and was often called the master or the queen of winter as she was able to control the length of the wintry season and also the temperature and the harshness of the cold. However, unlike the youthful Elsa, the Kaliach is depicted as an old woman. However, curiously, she is a symbol of new beginnings, presumably as after winter we always come into spring. The Kaliach was also a name that roughly translates to old woman, but also hag, which gives her the connotations of evil or even being perhaps quite ugly. 
which is very different to the character of Elsa, who is always represented as being young and beautiful. Though she is not said to be specifically good or evil, the Kaliach is credited with shaping the land in the way that we know it today. So she is a creator in a way, despite also bringing the connotations of a destructive winter. In some versions of the legend, the Kaliach is also a shapeshifter, and she herself will be able to transform with the seasons, appearing old and veiled in the winter, and youthful in the spring. During the festival of Beltane, she's also said to transform into Brigid, the goddess of summer. And as the festival itself is associated with a celebration of fertility, so too is the Kaliach, as she controls life and death through harsh winters and fruitful springs. In Frozen, Elsa runs to the mountains, and this is also traditionally the home of the Kaliach. In fact, she created mountains as a way for her to cross wide rivers and lochs. And alongside this, she's said to herd deer. Remember the reindeer from earlier? That appearance in Frozen, um, the deer is Kristoff's companion instead of Elsa's, but it's still an interesting choice of animal. Even Elsa's iconic blue dress is a potential nod to the Kaliach, who is said to have instead of blue skin. Though other retellings state that she's very pale like Elsa and has a blue dress in some works of art. Alongside this, Frozen's Elsa is never seen casting spells, unlike a regular witch or what we'd associate with a witch. Instead, her powers are more active and sometimes controlled by her emotions, which in a way remains true to the story of the Kaliach, as she too possesses great magic, but without the need for any spell casting, potions, or any other traditional elements of witchcraft. A big difference between the two characters, however, is their size, no pun intended. Although Elsa was the older sister, she wouldn't have been able to measure up to the Kaliach, who is a giant. She possesses great speed as well as power, giving her the ability to run across the mountains and the land, or even ride the storms. At the end of Frozen, Elsa is rescued and she's able to restore Arendelle, mirroring the new beginnings brought on by spring and concluding with a happy ending. That is, potentially, at least until the next instalment of Frozen, or the next coming of a harsh winter. I love the Kalia. I love Elsa. Equally. <laughs> I think, though, Frozen was loosely based on ha another Hans Christian Andersen, the Snow Queen, which is a story about the devil creates this magic mirror that shows only, like, the bad things in people. And they try and bring it up to heaven so they can make fun of the angels and God and be like, you're not perfect. But the mirror shatters because, of course, everyone in heaven is pure and good. Um, and these shards get into people's hearts and eyes and turns them cruel. And it's the same in um, Frozen. It's not that they turn cruel, but if the shard pierces your heart, then you turn to ice. Which I suppose is just an, you know another kind of metaphorical way of being like you become harsh and cruel. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that we've got like... Like, that's so many connections, considering this is the, the Christian Andersen one is the one that they cite. But, like, the Kaliak could be the same person. I yeah. hadn't thought at all, I, like, merely mentioned before that that's the one you were good at, and I hadn't thought off the top of my head that there'd be that many connections. I got the kind of, both are seen as ice queens, but it didn't even cross me, like, the kind of the blue as well, that's something the Kaliak was known for. I didn't know about the reindeer, then the deer stuff at all, so that was all... You to be so that was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of stories about Kelly herding deer, right? Jets, yeah. She was a guardian of deer and kept them alive through winter. I mean, I've actually not seen Frozen, but I've heard a song like a thousand times. <laughs> um, 
So I'm assuming singing is a big part of it. There is a story about the kayak and a hunter in Glen Nevis where like a bunch of hunters go out and they can't find anything and they, they keep hearing this this like sort of noise or this song and they're like, well the kayak's out looking after the deer. Like, that's why we can't find any. So everybody else goes home. There's one guy who's just like, I can't go home empty-handed because we've got nothing. Like, if I go home empty-handed, my wife and child will starve. So he makes me fire and he sings to the Kaliak about, I can't remember what the sound of the song goes, but you know, it's all about, you know, Kaliak, you're so big and strong. And he looks over and there she is sitting there. She's just like, you know, you're the first one to like actually, and he like asked for her help in the song. Like, oh, you're the first person to actually ask me for help now and just leave and run away. So you know what? You can have all the sick and like dying ones I don't want. So yeah, yeah it's, it's also one of Kaliak loves a musical. <laughs> I've always liked the, the vision of the Kaliak though, because it's not someone that ever entails seems particularly evil or good or it, they don't have a side, they just kind of are there and they they play a role and i think that works really stories. well with elsa because what mila was saying was that like her powers aren't tied to like intent they're tied to emotion mm. and with elsa at least in the first film um not so much in the second film but in the first film like she's very much like an anti-hero because her destruction is tied to her like it's a metaphor for anxiety and it's like explosive emotion mm. Um, and that's what turns her into a villain and causes the destruction and the problems in the world. And I like that that's kind of like the Kaliak, like she's just a for- force of nature. She's not... Well, she is nature, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I suppose if you look at the second film, though, Frozen, though, Elsa becomes effectively like a goddess she of does. the Force. She does. And that's what the Kaliak is. Yeah. So. That it's interesting that we've got these, like... We've got two kind of depictions... Well, lots of depictions of women, but just comparing it to the Little Mermaid one, and we have this woman as the temptress. Whereas in this case, you do tend to get a lot of female figures that represent the seasons. You know, winter is an old woman and spring is a young woman. And the same in Beltane, you've got the green man and spring is the woman. Um, and they're, they're, they're much more natural, like to be revered, not necessarily good or bad, not necessarily showing any of the you know, signs of womanhood as we would expect in folklore, like, you know, motherhood, having a nurturing kind of personality or whatever. I think that's probably a lot of these moments, like the Kayak story and Beltane things, they relate to the, the Celtic and the pre-Celtic origin, which were very kind of thought to be matriarchal-based mm. societies. So yeah. it would make sense they would have more kind of female goddesses. So It would be interesting to see because there's so much, like, blend, obviously, in cultures between the uk and europe that you know hans christian anderson is taking this from like the danish tale and there was a huge population of danes in the uk so how much of that was inspired by the kaliak and vice versa how much of our knowledge of the kaliak was inspired by their ideas of the snow queen I suppose as well, the, absolutely one, the danes influenced quite a lot through the german origins and a lot of the german celtic religions are very close to the scottish and irish so yeah i think it's all a lot more interconnected than we initially thought like i think a lot of people's like first thought is that oh you know back in the day no one spoke everyone was isolated all cultures kind of developed in their own little kind of microcosm but it like totally like people traveled boats existed you know um and people invaded other people people you know? invaded other people like <laughs> 
But it's not until you have like a comparison like this where you can really see, oh, hang on, like why is there so many connections here? You know, it's easy to talk about like there was a population of Danes in this particular area of Scotland. And then seeing like uh, these two stories have so much in common, but they've got apparently completely different roots. This Scottish story goes by a couple of different names. And there's a few different versions, but it's not hard to figure out which Disney story it pairs with. I call it Ration Coaty, others call it Rashy Coats, and this is my favourite version of the Scottish Cinderella. This is the story of a family with two daughters. One was fair and kind, while the other one, well, she might not have been an ugly stepsister, but she was definitely ugly on the inside. Unfortunately, the evil daughter happened to be the favourite, while the kind-hearted lass was worked to the bone and fed nothing but scraps. Sound familiar? The kind girl found herself sent to look after the livestock every day, but that was secretly her favourite chore. Because in typical Scottish fashion, this story doesn't have a fairy godmother. She had a fairy god coo. This wee magical red calf had taken it upon itself to look after her. Every day, the calf would lead the girl to a secret house where she could feast on whatever her heart desired. Eventually, her family noticed how much happier the girl seemed to be after tending to the cows, so her evil sister followed her. And once they discovered that the red calf was protecting the girl, they handed her an axe and ordered her to kill it. Well, there was no way she could kill her protector after everything it had done for her. But who knew what her family would do to her if she didn't? Her life could get even more miserable. So staring into the red calf's eyes to her own tears, she knew there was only one option. With axe in hand, she spun around and chopped off her sister's head. As you can see, we've veered well away from Disney's Cinderella now. Hopping onto the calf's back, the pair fled into the woods, racing through the bushes and thorns to safety. Her clothes became torn to shreds, but her fairy god coo made her a dress of rushes, and from then on she became known as Ration Coty. But even with the calf's help, Ration Coty still had to make a living, and she managed to get a job at a nearby castle. But once again she was left to the dirtiest, the least attractive chores. And everybody else went to enjoy a fun service in church at Christmas. She was left behind in the kitchen. Even though she wanted to go to the ball, sorry, I mean the Christmas service, she couldn't possibly be seen in church wearing a dress made of rushes. Sobbing away while she tended the food and salting the soup with her tears, the calf couldn't bear to see her so upset. So it surprised Ration Coty with a magnificent dress and slippers fit for a princess. And here we are, back running alongside Disney again. Ration Coty rushed to the church, and heads turned to see who had arrived so late. Eyes bulged from their sockets and jaws hit the floor at this beautiful woman, sweeping into a pew at the back of the building. Nobody recognised her as the lowly kitchen girl. The king's son fell in love at first sight, and as soon as the service was finished, he raced to speak to the mysterious girl, but he found that Ration Coty was already gone. In her haste, she had left behind one of her shoes. The prince turned to the congregation and declared he was going to find a girl who the shoe fitted and he was going to marry her. He was the country's most eligible bachelor, so naturally there were dozens of girls eager to try the shoe on and dupe him into marriage. However, it was tiny 
They didn't fit a single one of them. So eventually, the prince found himself at the local wise woman's cottage. Now, I said she was wise. I didn't say she was honest. The tiny shoe didn't have a hope of fitting onto her daughter's giant foot. But he would do anything to get inside the royal household. So before the prince could move on, the mother discreetly sliced off a chunk of her daughter's foot. And now it slipped into the shoe perfectly. Now obviously wasn't the elegant woman that the prince had fallen for in the church, but he'd made a public announcement. He refused to dishonour himself by going back on his word. Reluctantly, he agreed to marry her. Word of the impending wedding spread. Rashan Koti was crushed that she had missed her chance of a happy ever after. The night before the ceremony, the wee red calf saw how sad the girl was once again and knew that something had to be done. He sent a little bird to fly up to the prince's bedroom and deliver a message. The bird found its target lying in bed, thinking about ways it could get out of a misguided nuptials. And then the prince heard a strange chirping. An odd song for a bird. It even seemed to have words. It seemed to be telling him that he could find some real bonny feet down in the kitchen instead of those bloody stumps with the toes chopped off. He was confused, but he was intrigued. So the prince followed the little bird down to the dark kitchens, and there, by the light of the fire, he found a vision of beauty hiding beneath a layer of soot, or cinders, if you will. She was wearing a coat of rushes. He knew this was the girl he had vowed to marry, and he proved it with the lost shoe. The wedding celebrations were amended. The wise woman and her daughter were chased out of town for her deception, and Rashan Koti was happy at last. She hadn't forgotten who had made it all possible, though. So a nice, comfortable barn was built for the wee red calf, so that they could all share their happily ever after. I had heard this story before, but I'd never heard the term fairy god coup before, and it absolutely sent me. Oh, yeah. Like... <laughs> I, I want a fairy god coup. The weird thing is a small red calf, and through the entire story it's a calf, and the implication is this is always a calf, it never grows into a cow. I think Disney really missed out by not casting the fairy godmother as a cow. I was just going to say, so there's like hundreds and thousands of Cinderella tales all over. And you can find, like, if you search Cinderella in Goodreads, it's just pages upon pages of different stories, especially the children's stories. But I just, it's really interesting how many of them are an animal companion. And I wonder at what point that shifted to the human companion. So, like, I know um, Ye Shen, which is the Chinese version, she's a magical fish, a golden fish that she speaks to. I don't know. So I did a wee bit of, like, background Cinderella stuff, probably not as much as I should have for this. Uh, and apparently the earliest version of a Cinderella-esque tale is about 2,000 years old as a Greek mm-hmm. story. You know, you always wonder, is that one story, that Greek story, is that being passed mm-hmm. around by sailors and it's been taken and changed? Or is it just such a good kind of story that independently it sprung up in all these different places? And I read that it was about a Greek slave woman who marries a king. The shoe's quite a particular... Like, I've always thought that there's so many versions and they still think the way of identifying a person is by their shoe size. Such a general thing that loads of people have rather than what they look like. It's not like they've all got the ball wearing a mask. Like, Well, but maybe it's not shoe size. Maybe it's style. Because you did, like... Shoemakers were a huge thing and it used to be, like... The shoe was a very important part 
of your outfit. Have you seen little sandals that like King Tut was buried with? So cute. But like, you know, you you the like you had shoes were as much part of the outfit and the identity that you presented. Remember those like shoes that they really long curly tail and and things you could get. So if you're thinking about these stories written in a time where like a fisherman's sweater, you could probably take a look at a shoe and be like, I think that's Rob's. You know, like I recognize the stitching on it. Do you think maybe then at some point the shoe fit meant more like fit the person in personality than literally fit their foot? It would ruin the kind of cutting off bit, which is in some of them, but you know. But it also might just be a metaphor for like, don't judge someone based on how they present themselves to you. Which is the same. We've got like the favorite sister who's actually evil on the inside. And here's the fair sister who's wearing a disgusting, terrible coat, but she's beautiful and pure on the inside. I wonder which came first, like, does, if the shoe fit, like, whether that came first or whether Cinderella came first. Ooh. Oh, I'm going to be Googling that. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.